from the Credit Union National Association. This is the CUNY News Podcast. Credit Union people. Credit Union ideas. Faced with the changing demographics of a community and a struggle to repay borrowed secondary capital from the U.S. Treasury, leadership at Northside Community Federal Credit Union knew a merger was in their future. But they wanted to make sure the merger took place on their own terms, says Sarah Marshall. I'm Jennifer Plager, a senior editor with CUNA News and Credit Union Magazine. I recently spoke with Marshall, the Chief Community Development Officer for 860 Million Asset Great Lakes Credit Union and former CEO of Northside Community Federal Credit Union. Marshall talked about the recent merger involving the two Chicago area credit unions, what it means for the former credit union's members, how to navigate change, and more during a conversation with the CUNA News Podcast. Sarah, you were the former CEO at Northside Community Federal Credit Union, and you guys recently underwent a merger and had some big changes going on. Can you give me a little bit of the background on Northside Community, of how it was formed, why it was formed, what kind of folks it was serving? Sure. Yeah. So Northside Community Federal Credit Union was chartered in Chicago. We served four small neighborhoods in the city, and we were actually sponsored by the whole houses. Fairly famous organization, one of the first settle houses, settlement houses in the country, serving people who needed to relocate or struggling financially. And we originally were started because the founding member of the credit union lives in the community. She was an activist and had gone to a bank to get a loan to get a mortgage in the neighborhood. And she essentially was redlined. And redlining was a common practice in the 70s. Banks and financial institutions would choose neighborhoods that they felt may be higher risk and would not invest or provide mortgage loans in those communities. And so that happened to our founding member. And so she felt like there had to be a better alternative. And so she founded Northside with the mission of serving those struggling to access fair and affordable financial resources. And we had a long history of innovation. I think a lot of it is due to the fact that we had a founding member who remained on our board throughout the entire history of the credit union but some of the things that we worked on, for example, is we are were one of the first credit unions in the country to offer a small dollar emergency payday alternative loan to people struggling with living paycheck to paycheck. And we were actually the first credit union in the country to offer a citizenship loan product. Like I mentioned, you, you guys have just undergone a merger. What kind of led up to that decision to seek out a merger partner? There were really two things that led up to that decision and, and both to some degree completely separate but related. The first is that in 2010, uh, Northside had borrowed some secondary capital from the U.S. Treasury. And for those who aren't familiar with secondary capital, it is a tool available to low-income designated credit unions to leverage their balance sheet. But essentially, it's a a low-interest loan that uh, needs to be repaid. And Northside had borrowed some money in 2010, and it became apparent that we were going to struggle to repay the capital. At the same time, we were chartered and founded in a very poor, struggling community in the city. And like many cities across the country, the neighborhood was improving in terms of safety and accessibility, but also gentrifying. And a lot of members were being pushed out. And so about a year and a half ago, we were starting to see a very different demographic and much more upwardly mobile demographic coming into the branch and opening up accounts. And we also realized that we didn't have the full suite of products and services to serve them. We really were serving a niche market in our small dollar loans and providing accounts for people who had had trouble with other financial institutions or weren't comfortable with the traditional financial system. So those are really the two reasons. One is the capital and the second is the 
community around us was really changing faster than we could keep up with it. And you, you ultimately, you, you've merged with Great Lakes Credit Union. What made you choose them as your partner? Yeah, so and that's something that I would suggest all small credit unions that do need to think about merging. It's not an easy process. It was something that initially the board of directors and myself were reluctant to do because, as I mentioned, some of Northside's history before, we felt like our legacy was really important and we didn't want to see that go away. We wanted to make sure our members still had access to resources. So we put together a list of credit unions we wanted to think about merging with, and we did our due diligence. And some we were able to eliminate without visiting, but we narrowed it down to a few finalists and then essentially did interviews with the credit unions that we thought might be candidates. We wanted to make sure that we were also stayed in a position where we weren't challenged financially and didn't have a choice in who our merger partner would be. We wanted to make sure we were proactive and, and had room to to leverage the things that we built. And so through our due diligence process, the board chair and myself met with the CEO and the CFO. And um, when we spoke with them, they were very interested in expanding and leveraging the work that Northside did in low to moderate income and underserved communities and made a commitment to to see that happen. I just started in a role there as a chief community development officer, and they started a new community development department to really expand and leverage our work and and bring it to all of the 12 branches of Great Lakes. What does the merger mean for those Northside Community Federal members going forward? Yeah, so the easy answer to that question is just tons more options in terms of products and services. Uh, Because of the scale, members now have access to things like mobile apps, call centers to get their calls answered more quickly. Just a lot of the challenges that small credit unions have to overcome, we are now able to offer to those members of Northside. And the membership, are are they excited or or are they on board with what's happening? That was one of my biggest concerns going into it was the fear that the members wouldn't be excited about this change and that it wasn't going to be something that they wanted to see happen. But as we communicated it to the staff and, and talked about all the benefits and all of the, the things, opportunities that would really bring the staff as well, we were able to communicate the same thing to the membership. And so the final vote from the membership was 295 in favor of the merger to 15 no's. So it was just astronomical in terms of positive response from members. So now you mentioned um, you're taking on a new role as the Chief Community Development Officer with Great Lakes. What does that mean for you? What will you be doing and how do you feel? Are you excited about it? Yeah, I'm really excited about it. I think for years I've had a wish list of things that Northside could do at scale and things that I was working towards. And hopefully this will be an opportunity to bring some of those more viable ideas to scale and bring them to the market. It also means access to resources for people in a much broader area. As I mentioned, Northside only served four communities in Chicago. We'll be able to serve the entire Chicago region with um, the same type of products and services that Northside offered as well. And how do you think your experience working with the folks at Northside and, and in that community and that membership, how do you think that'll help you out in your new role? There's probably lots of ways to answer that question, but I think the most immediate that comes to mind is perspective. When for individuals who worked at small credit unions, you know that small credit union CEOs can be pretty hands-on at times. And so I had a lot of face-to-face interaction with members and got to see all of the loans that came through and most of the collections that came through. And the stories are what will really stick with me. And those stories, I think, are, are why it's important to 
the credit in an industry that we're thinking about and reaching out to low to moderate income communities. I think of one particular example of uh, a small dollar loan exception, and the member wrote a letter to us requesting the exception. And in this particular case, they needed some extended financing because the place that they were living had been broken into twice. And on the most recent occasion, their daughter was home, and so they were concerned about safety and needed some additional money for a security deposit to move somewhere safer. And those types of stories, I think, really speak to some of the need that we're not always aware of. And I have hundreds of stories like that in that perspective of how this work actually touches real people in real lives, I think is the most valuable thing I'll carry with me throughout my career. Switching gears a little bit, um, you spoke earlier this month at the CUNA Small Credit Union Conference here in Madison, and you talked about organizational culture. What exactly is organizational culture? Pretty simply, it's just the norms, expectations, and values of an organization. But when you think about it a little bit more deeply, it's both the spoken and unspoken values. Sometimes there are things that are expressed, for example, the things that are put in the strategic plan or the things that are talked about verbally are the spoken values, but there are often unspoken values and norms of an organization as well. And sometimes we don't, as leaders, think critically about what those unspoken things are, what unspoken things are sometimes rewarded. And those are the things that make up the culture of an organization and set the tone for how people work. So is an organizational culture, is that something that kind of always exists? Or do we have to kind of work at establishing one? In my opinion, it always exists because people essentially form relationships and there are dynamics that happen in any room where people spend a significant amount of time together. I think often, and this isn't restricted to credit unions in any way, but many times the culture is unexamined. So you sort of have these these norms and patterns that form, but there's not a lot of intentionality or thought as to why those things have formed. And so... Again, as I said, the things that are put in a strategic plan or spoken about verbally are just one aspect of the culture. And so developing a culture really means thinking through it and beginning to set the tone for the direction you want the culture to go. And why is it a good thing to have a culture in place? A couple of reasons come to mind. One of the first is just that it can give employees a purpose to work towards. Um, And I think about this one in, in the context of values and Sometimes I share a story that was often told at at Northside where I was formerly working and the culture of the credit union was that the board was committed to not just helping people get loans, but to repay their loans and doing everything that they could to make sure that people were able to repay those loans. And as an example, the former board chair would tell a story of how they lent a member money to buy an ice cream truck. And then after board meetings, the entire board and all of their family members would then go out and buy ice cream from this individual to help him afford to repay his loan, make sure he had enough money for the loan payment. And that became part of the culture of the credit union was that the organization really was intentional about going above and beyond. And, and so that was an example of an unspoken value. But To begin to set that direction, it means becoming intentional about how those things are expressed in the branch, in interactions with members, and in interactions with each other. How do you go about establishing a culture? The first thing really would be to assess what's in place. And I come from a background in community organizing and did a little bit of that early in my career. And so I think the best way to assess what's in place is to really ask questions and listen. And and that sounds so common sense, but sometimes we 
hear people, but we don't really listen to what they're saying about the culture. And a lot of the times those things happen in offhand comments or conversations, not always in sit-down meetings where people are expressing what they're really feeling or thinking about the culture. Offhanded comments is asking questions of members um, would really be the first step in assessing where you are. And then the second would be deciding as an organization where you're going. And then from that point on, there are steps that you can take to begin to establish that. And a lot of those get into change management theory and how do you create change. But really, you need to know where you're going before you start going there. How do you get the employees on board? That can be a difficult process because people don't always like change. Change is always a process of learning and it's a process of forcing yourself into an uncomfortable position, no matter who you are or what your experience level is. Anytime you're learning something new, it's a little bit uncomfortable. It's kind of like a path in the woods and you can walk down a pathway that's already been cleared and there's a nice trail there, or you can begin to create a new pathway. And the first couple of times you go down that path, there's a lot of underbrush and trees that need to be cleared out. And that's essentially what's happening in your brain whenever there's change. So communication with employees helps talking through reasons, being transparent, helping people understand why that change is in place. And then I mentioned just a minute ago, there are theories of change management and that gets down to the detail of changing physical locations, essentially where people sit, the format of meetings and communication, things like who's reporting to who, structures within the organization. And those are levers that can be changed. And oftentimes there are multiple levers that have to work in tandem in order for that change to begin to happen. And it, it does take time. And then sometimes there are tough decisions that have to be made. Not every employee is going to necessarily fit in with the new culture or going to be on board with those changes. But even that needs to be handled carefully as well, because if not, then that can create fear in employees at the same time, as well as reduce morale. And reducing morale is something that can cause some difficulty with changing an organization because you want people to be as excited about it as possible. Once your culture is established, are there tips you have for folks who are maybe bringing new employees in to make sure that they're the right fit for that culture? I think establishing a culture is not a one-time event. Establishing a culture takes continual work and continual maintenance, just like anything that we care about. It takes maintenance, so it does need to consistently be reassessed. But it helps once you understand the culture of an organization to begin to think about that in the interviewing process and begin to talk to different levels of management about the culture of the organization and begin to interview not just for skill set, but skill set and cultural fit. And maybe that sometimes means that's a fit with the direction that the culture should go or that you want the culture to go and not necessarily fit with where the culture is currently. Because anytime you bring a new personality, a new person with new perspective and ideas into the mix, it begins to contribute something to that culture and to the room. When it comes to a culture, is it more important? Does it have more of an impact for a big versus a small credit union? Or is the kind of impact and importance? Is it kind of the same regardless of what size credit union we're talking about? As a small organization, there are things that are a little bit, I don't want to say easier to navigate because that's not really the right thing, but smaller organizations aren't subject to all of the same employment laws. Not that those aren't important and not that smaller organizations shouldn't be treating their employees fairly and well because they absolutely should, but sometimes processes for hiring, disciplining, et cetera, can be quicker 
and more personal at a smaller organization. Communication can be more verbal and more instant when there are less people. At a larger organization, there are more layers and more dynamics to manage. So when I say different types of impact, it, it absolutely has an impact. And when we think of, for example, related to organizational culture, in early 2019, late 2018, Amazon was in the news quite a bit for their employment practices. And that tarnishes a, an organization's reputation when it, it doesn't have a reputation of being a, a workplace that people want to be or I think there's more opportunity for an organization to be known for the wrong things when organizational culture isn't intentional, and that can create some difficulties in retaining and attracting talent as well. So I think the impacts are different depending on the size. It's just as important to any size, though. As a leader yourself, how how do you go about leading your organization or your employees through a big change? I mean, you're doing it right now with with the merger. I mean, you're going from small north side to you're becoming a part of Great Lakes. How do you lead your your staff and your organization through a time of big change like this? It definitely takes persistence and patience. Change is not a quick process, no matter what the type of change. As a leader, I think Self-awareness is incredibly important in understanding where you do and don't communicate well, what details you do and don't handle well, and making sure that you're extra aware of those during times of change because those are areas that employees and people that you work with and for are going to feel insecure. Transparency goes a long way, though, keeping people involved in the process and up to date on what's happening as well as being honest about what you do and don't know comes down to authenticity, being authentic. Not necessarily sharing everything or oversharing, but being authentic with people so that they have some trust in the process as well. But then I, you know, I also want to make sure that patience is mentioned because it is a very stressful time. And sometimes when people are undergoing that kind of stress, they don't always perform to quite the standards that you're accustomed to or would expect because there's transition and there are things happening that they're feeling out of control of. And so, Extra communication, sometimes one-on-one and extra conversation can be important. So communication, I think, becomes even more important during times of change and transition and stress, as well as acknowledging what people are going through and talking with them and listening about how to help them work through some of the challenges that they're having. That idea of taking some time to talk with your employees and figure out what's going on in their head and how they're feeling, is that one of the steps towards making them feel secure and feeling a little less scared of of the whole unknown that's going on with the change? Yeah, it depends on where they are individually as well. Some people are not going to accept change, and there are cases where that happens. But but yeah, I think sitting down with people, and again, if you're a larger organization, that doesn't necessarily mean the CEO like myself is sitting down with them, um, in my case with this merger, but a direct manager or a supervisor or somebody who is in a more senior role is is communicating and is trying to find out what is going on and, and keeping in mind as well that people are people with stresses outside of the workplace that they're carrying in. And so when you're you're bringing in a tremendous amount of change at the same time, all those things can sometimes come together. And if, if not conscious of what's happening with people on an individual level can cause things to go a direction you didn't initially intend. And what about for those employees, those individuals who are going through the change? What kind of advice do you have for them? Part of it is trusting the process. If you are working for an organization where you have enjoyed being there and trust the leadership and trust that 
they have your best interest in mind and the best interest of the organization in mind, trusting that there is an outcome at the other side of the process. Sometimes in the middle of it, it's hard to see where things are going and what's going to happen, but just trusting and similarly communicating as well. Sometimes, again, when people get stressed, they don't communicate as well. So communicating, asking questions, and then just trusting the process and and buying in even before you really fully buy in, it goes a long way. And and to explain that a little bit, deciding to go along with the change, deciding to ask good and appropriate questions, but to be willing to adapt and be willing to have a mindset of learning and growing goes a tremendous way. Thanks for listening to the CUNA News Podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play.